From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch, friends. My name is Joseph Backholm, and I am sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you are with us. We have so much to talk about today. Why does China now have a three-child policy? We're going to discuss that June this month is Pride Month. You probably know your social media feed has certainly uh, informed you of that, as well as lots of other ways to recognize this, depending on where you live in the fruited plain.、Uh, we're going to talk with someone who used to be part of the LGBT community. Hear their thoughts on Pride Month. The end of the program. We are going to have our weekly discussion with David Clausen, thinking about thinking biblically about. Pride Month. How should Christians respond to this month? What's the right way to do that? That's going to be our conversation at the end of the program. But first, the headlines for today. Yesterday, there was a lot of movement within the Biden administration as some Republicans continued to press it to be more forceful in its response to the recent spate of ransomware attacks. At the Justice Department, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco issued an internal memo directing U.S. prosecutors to report all ransomware investigations they may be working on to enhance and centralize its efforts. And an open letter from Deputy National Security Advisor Ann Newberger warned American businesses to take urgent security measures to protect against ransomware attacks. You may recall that she had just last month made clear the administration's hands-off approach. Here's what she said. Clip one. Go ahead and play that. Colonial is a private company, and we'll defer、um, information regarding their decision on paying a ransom to them. Did you, did the, the administration offer any advice on whether or not to pay a ransom? So typically, that is a private sector decision, and the administration has not offered further advice at this time. Given the rise in ransomware, that is one area we're definitely looking at now to say what should be the government's approach to ransomware actors and to ransoms overall. And since then, the tone appears to have changed. Here's what she's saying now. Go ahead and play clip two. Jen, in light of the recent ransomware attack,、uh, what is the White House guidance to private companies, the private sector,、uh, about paying ransom? Our guidance continues to be from the FBI that companies should not pay ransom、uh, because it incentivizes these attacks on other companies. Now that was the exchange yesterday between a reporter and White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. Are the administration's latest efforts too little, too late? With me now to talk about this and a lot more is Congresswoman Kat Kamek, who serves on the Homeland Security Committee and the House Agriculture Committee. She represents Florida's third congressional district. Congresswoman, welcome to Washington Watch. Hey, thank you so much, Joseph. Great to be with you. Well, I'm glad to have you. You are one of the、uh, bright lights in the in the recent class of of, of Congress people and and women for sure, especially on the pro life issue. We are certainly glad to have you there and and appreciate your time today as well. Now,、uh, FBI Director Christopher Ray in an interview yesterday with the Wall Street Journal compared. Uh, the recent spate of attacks to the challenge posed by 9/11. He said that the most prominent recent ransomware hacks represent only a fraction of some 100 types of ransomware the FBI is investigating. Do you agree with that comparison that he's made to 9/11? <laughs> well, no, no. I mean, 
9-11 will forever be etched in our memories. And, and of course, now we, we live in a time where we have kids graduating college or, or high school that, you know, uh, weren't even alive when 9-11 happened. But, I mean, you think of the loss of life and you everyone remembers where they were that day. So I, I would say that that is definitely a, a a comparison that goes a little bit beyond the pale. But, you know, in talking about the seriousness that the cyber uh, the cyber community is facing and the challenges that we're facing really as a whole, it's pretty scary. When we look at the number of cyber warriors that we have in comparison to, say, China, it is very, very troublesome, and it is something that keeps me up at night. But to compare it to 9-11, I mean, that's, that's a bit extreme. So, you know, I think right yeah. now we have – yeah, I, I think we have a bit of a challenge on our hands in the sense that this is such an over uh, it's such a huge issue that we have to tackle and you see these private companies that really do uh, a job that is critical to our national security critical to our economy they do it better than any government entity ever could which is so criti- uh, so important for us to make sure that we're not infringing on private industry so we have a lot of things that we got to figure out. But first and foremost, what is our deterrence? What is the national uh, platform of the United States government? What are we doing to deter these types of attacks? And have we set forth any consequences? And and about that, uh, it's interesting how this has become a news item. I actually have friends in the private sector who work on this issue specifically um, for private sector companies because ransomware hacks, uh, stealing information for ransom, that's not really a new phenomenon. That's been around for a while. Why is it that it's suddenly such big news that it now has the attention of the federal government? Well, and I think it's because, you know, you look at the colonial attack, and that was a pipeline that serviced a lot of the southeast. And, of course, everyone goes into panic mode, and then immediately you see the price of the pump going up and up and up, and people start doing really stupid things like putting gas in plastic bags in the backseat of their trunk. I mean, it just gets ridiculous. It's the same thing that we see when a hurricane comes through Florida. People panic. They don't know what to do. And this this kind of craziness ensues, and all rational thought goes out the window. Now, of course, in Florida, we aren't served by a, a pipeline, but the panic buying definitely affected the entire state. People started buying up in mass. And then you look at what just happened with JBS. That's a, a direct attack on a processor and packer who really has a, a large share of the the market when it comes to poultry and beef and pork. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, you're going to see a little bit of panic in the grocery stores and the price per pound, and that's going to drive down the price Mm -hmm. on the hoof. So the producers are going to lose and the consumers are going to lose. But because JBS was so good and so quick to respond, they were able to get their systems rebuilt and beta tested in record time. They were expecting at least a two-week delay. They were up within 72, uh, 96 hours. And that's pretty incredible. So do you think it is true that these these hackers, uh, these kind of cyber terrorists are actually hitting higher value targets, which is why these are becoming bigger stories? You know, I think there's something he said for the fact, and I can't even take credit for this. I was having a conversation with a friend who uh, your your listeners would know. Um, he, he's been working in the homeland security space for a long time. He said it's actually quite simple. A lot of these major companies, they have in their bylaws 
the dollar amount that a CEO is authorized to transfer without buy-in from the board. Now, if I am an, uh, a bad actor and I'm looking for a quick way to make a buck, I would look at that number and say, hey, look, this company is pretty dang big, and their CEO is authorized to move $5 million before having to go to the board. That's a soft, easy target. So there's some some pretty basic common sense things that we can look to and say, well, we've made this publicly available. And we know that these companies are so dependent on timeliness. You know, you look at the, the things that they're targeting, like energy, like food supply. These are things that will will immediately give a sense of panic amongst Americans. And that puts pressure in the media. It puts pressure on these companies. And they're forced to act quickly. And when they don't have to have that buy-in from the board to move this money, they're able to do that very quickly. So I think, again, it goes to a bigger a bigger issue of the lack of resiliency we have in the grid and in the network, um, the lack of deterrence that we have as a whole, and really the lack of consequence and accountability that is the follow-up once something like this happens. And we all know that this particular cyber gang, Dark Side, they operate in Russia with the blessing of the Russian government. So we have to be very cognizant that we're not starting World War III by, you know, retaliating because I think that that's a very dangerous game that we start playing. And I certainly, under this administration, don't have the confidence that we have a commander-in-chief that has the backbone to do what's necessary to really push back. Well, well, certainly we don't want cyber warfare to turn into real warfare. But what is the um, – what's your – reaction to how the Biden administration is handling this. How are they doing? Are they doing the right things to to deter this from happening in the future? No, you know, I think that you just saw, you know, they had they're telling a different story from day to day. And I think that it's one thing to be engaged and and be a part of it. You know, I was on the phone with JBS uh, the very next day after the attack. And I know members of the Homeland Security Committee were doing that. And the FBI was on the ground in Greeley, Colorado. DHS was engaged. You can't be, it's not enough to be a mouthpiece in this situation. You really have to be a facilitator. And I don't see the White House doing that and playing that role. And as we saw in the clip that you played, that's just not where their strong suit has been in keeping a consistent message and really reassuring the American public, but also our private enterprises, that they have the full backing of the United States government when it comes to these critical attacks on critical infrastructure. And so I I really am very nervous about the the ability and capability of the White House and this administration to respond, because it's not a matter of if, it's when another attack occurs. Well, speaking of abilities and capabilities, uh, the Biden administration also released a $6 trillion budget proposal for fiscal year 2022. and, and it's, it's notable for many reasons. Uh, we won't have the, the time to get into all of them. But one of the reasons it's notable is that it lacks the Hyde Amendment language that has become uh, that has been we're used to seeing in budgets. And, of course, he campaigned on the fact that he was going to oppose the Hyde Amendment after a whole career in public office supporting the Hyde Amendment. What are your thoughts on this? Well, you know, it kind of goes back to what we were just talking about. There's this this administration is now becoming known as the flip flop administration. And we see that in Biden and his comments that he is no longer going to support the Hyde Amendment, despite having a 40 year career in government supporting it. 
so the thing that I talk that I say when we talk about this budget, this six trillion dollar budget that President Biden is suggesting and proposing, it doesn't just bankrupt our country economically, fiscally and steal our country's future. This budget, this six trillion dollar budget is bankrupting us morally as well. This will be the first time that we haven't had hide protections in a budget, which is really an American issue. This isn't a Republican issue or a Democrat issue. This isn't a pro-life, pro-choice amendment. This really is a, hey, we don't think that taxpayer dollars should go to a person who wants to terminate a life. That is a personal decision. And your next door neighbor who could, for religious reasons or other reasons, be opposed to that morally, ethically, and otherwise. So why in the heck are we using taxpayer dollars to fund this horrible practice? And it's just, it really is shameful. It is absolutely awful. We'll be fighting it every step of the way. I think the more that we can do in this Congress to support life, we absolutely have to. Well, we appreciate you doing that. Even even for those who believe abortion actually is a right, um, I, I like to tell them if you don't believe taxpayers should taxpayer dollars should be used to pay for weapons on behalf of people's Second Amendment rights, you shouldn't be believing that taxpayer funds should pay for people's abortions either. Uh, Congresswoman Kamek, thank you so much uh, for spending uh, very quickly. Do you think that uh, the lack of Hyde Amendment language is going to affect the prospects of the budget in Congress? Absolutely. 100 percent. Absolutely. And, and we hope it will. Uh, Congresswoman Kamek, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. We look forward to next time. Hey, thank you so much, Joseph. Everybody have a great and safe weekend. Coming up after the break, China had a one-child policy, two-child policy. Now it's three. We'll talk about it next. What is Roe versus Wade and what did it do? The Supreme Court's 1973 decision ruled that abortion is protected under the U.S. Constitution, striking down many state abortion restrictions and severely limiting the extent to which states could write their own abortion laws. The Supreme Court's limitations on states to legislate abortion restrictions depends on the trimester of a pregnancy. For instance, Roe disallows states from restricting abortions in the first trimester, but allows some restrictions on abortions in the third trimester. What Roe doesn't do is require states to have any restrictions. Abortion through all nine months of pregnancy is the default, unless Congress or the individual states pass laws restricting it. That leaves a lot of room for unrestricted abortions. For a full explanation of how Roe v. Wade liberalized abortion laws, go to frc.org slash explainer. That's frc.org slash explainer. After the recent wave of media censorship, are you struggling to find a conservative, relevant, and Christian platform where you can find out what's really going on? Here at Family Research Council, we believe that Americans have a right to exercise their freedom of speech and share their stories with the world. If you're ready to hear the facts that the left doesn't want you to know about, then head over to frcblog.com to check out our latest blog posts. We cover a wide range of issues you and your family care about, all written by our policy, government affairs, and biblical worldview experts. We discuss topics that other media platforms won't, like changes in pro-life policy, current events that affect Christians internationally, sexuality from a biblical perspective, and insights into the bigger picture of the shift in American culture. To stay up to date on current news related to faith, family, and freedom, visit frcblog.com. That's frcblog.com. 
Would you like to spend more time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible with their Stand on the Word Bible Reading Plan. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading with an intentional focus of diving deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues. By studying the Bible, we can see the grandeur of God unfold throughout the past. This reading plan takes you through the Bible as events happen in history. Laying out the scripture every day in an engaging manner, it is key to helping us stay grounded in God's truth. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. Start reading today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony. It's June 4th, and it was on this day 32 years ago that Chinese Communist Party troops opened fire on student-led pro-democracy protesters in and around Beijing's Tiananmen Square, killing hundreds, if not thousands. Beijing, of course, continues to obscure the facts, going to great lengths to suppress references to shameful crackdowns, just as it continues to stifle criticism of its human rights violations and other unseemly policies. And speaking of unseemly policies, you may be aware that China once had a one-child policy. And more recently, in 2016, it became a two-child policy. Well, now it's a Three child policy. And with me now to talk about why is Ariel Del Turco, Assistant Director of the Center for Religious Liberty at Family Research Council. Ariel, welcome back. It's nice to be with you, Joseph. Well, it's great to have you. You know, we think about China, we talk about China because you care about international religious freedom, and China does not. And so we talk about China a lot. Um, it's 32 years today since the Tiananmen Square uprising and massacre. What are your reflections on that? What have we learned, if anything, in the last 32 years? Yeah, well, unfortunately, the Tiananmen Square Massacre, it's a piece of history, but it's more than that. It's really a representation of the way that the Chinese government still interacts with its citizens. During the Tiananmen Square Massacre, it was a move by the Chinese government to absolutely crush dissent, to crush this pro-democracy movement that had been developing for weeks there. They'd been calling for greater political rights, and that's something the Chinese Communist Party, which rules China, just could not allow. And so this was a major crackdown on that movement. And even today, they're really not allowed to talk about this. The Chinese people are not allowed to commemorate this openly. A lot of students go through school. And they don't even know that this happened. So, yeah, it's it's part of history, but history matters. And if you don't know it, you repeat it. And we see that all the time in China today, even with the way the government treats that current human rights lawyers and anyone who brings up um, any form of dissent, disagreeing with the Chinese Communist Party, they still crush that dissent. So does that mean that things are not any better than they were 32 years ago in China? It means that the Chinese Communist Party still has the same oppressive practices. We saw in 2019 the Chinese government imprisoned Pastor Wang Yi to nine years in prison. 
in large part just because he spoke out against some of the policies, including abortion policies and including religious freedom. So the Chinese government will go to great lengths to punish people who speak out. We saw even a Uyghur activist who lives in the United States in D.C., Roshana Bas, she participated in an event in the United States in 2018, calling attention to human rights in the Xinjiang region, which we've talked about on this program a lot. Mm-hmm. And in retaliation, the Chinese government took her, detained her sister, who was still living in Xinjiang under Chinese control. So people who speak up both in China and even outside of China really face a great risk. Well, China seems to be adapting somewhat, and I want to talk about that with this new three-child policy. And kind of, you know, they were infamous for their one-child policy. Uh, then they realized they needed more people, and so they went to two. Now we're at three. What's the motivation behind that? What are they thinking? Yeah, so for decades, China enforced this, as you said, infamous one-child policy, and they used really oppressive measures to do so. Sometimes they would be dragging women who violated this policy and got pregnant with a second child or sometimes even a first child without permission, dragging them to clinics for their abortions. People would be sterilized to prevent further pregnancies. This was a really oppressive time in Chinese history. And in large part, that was because China was afraid of overpopulation and afraid of not having enough resources for their people. Today, they're worried about the opposite. They're worried about the decline in birth rates and this rapidly aging population where they don't have enough young people, enough young workers anymore to take care of those elderly Chinese people. And what does that mean practically on the ground? How is the how is the lack of young people manifesting itself practically in the lives of the Chinese today? Yeah, well, mm-hmm. even aside from some of the trauma and tragedy of the one-child policy, We now have a generation of Chinese people who have grown up with only themselves, with no siblings, mostly. And so that's really had an effect on even family dynamics. That puts all the pressure on the one child to succeed, all the family's hopes into that one child. And it's really created an entitled and stressed generation and a hyper-competitive generation because all these parents want their child to be the best. So it's really had a practical family dynamics for all of these people. And now that these people are grown up, they've not had siblings, having multiple children, it's just like outside the norm for them. A lot of people even scoffed at the idea of having three children when this policy was announced this week. So we see a lot of long-term consequences to the one-child policy. Does that mean that this isn't even going to work? Because even if the Chinese government says, hey, we need more people, like the culture of China is now, we're all about small families, so nobody's even interested in having three kids? Yeah, the damage has really been done. And economists are really like kind of shrugging in response to this policy, not really having a lot of hope that it's going to make a difference. Well, you know, you know, this population decline is is not just a Chinese problem. Um, we, Japan has kind of been infamous for it for decades now. We even see in the United States our own birth rates, especially in some states. We're not replacing um, ourselves, and we depend on immigration just to have uh, population growth. Is there any chance that the rest of the world looks at what China is going through right now and uh, and, and adjusts before they get into the Chinese problem situation? 
Yeah, this is this is really a lesson for the rest of the world. And unfortunately for the Chinese government, it's not just something that can be fixed through policy. It's really an issue of the heart, as you alluded to. It's really something where culture needs to be developed to foster the valuing of families. Yeah, it, it certainly does. And, and I think, you know, this is a super long conversation about what happens when you don't have kids demographically, the practice. The practical part of can you take care of your parents and when you are old do you have people to take care of you but spiritually as well what that says about how you value life and uh, so this is a, an issue we're going to continue to need to track um, and we got to think about long and hard about in, in, in America do we value kids and why do we value kids uh, but we will continue that conversation and Ariel Del Turco thank you so much uh, for joining us for today appreciate it very much thank you now, coming up, we are going to talk about Pride Month. Uh, you know it's happening. We all know it's happening. But we're going to talk about it with somebody who used to be part of the LGBTQ community, a different perspective, right after the break. Where do you get your news? Do you have confidence you're getting the full truth? If you want to stay up to date on conservative news and are looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged, then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent radio programs, social media posts, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. Stay informed with a trusted source. Again, search Stand Firm to download the Stand Firm app. As the political and cultural landscape of our nation has shifted in a concerning direction, it is so important for Christians to be equipped with biblical answers for the difficult questions of our time. That is why Family Research Council created our Biblical Worldview series. With the political left changing definitions to favor their narrative and to push their agenda, at times it can be hard to decipher what is true. That is why we must hold to the truth of the Bible, which stands the test of time. It holds the truth that does not change. Become equipped to stand firm in the face of cultural and political storms with FRC's Biblical Worldview series. This series dives deep into what the Bible says about some of the most crucial issues of our day. You'll learn what the Bible teaches on abortion, same-sex marriage, the separation of church and state, religious freedom, and the age-old question, should Christians be involved in politics? To access this series, visit frc.org worldview. That's frc.org worldview. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony, would like to remind you to download the Stand Firm app, Google Play, and the App Store, where you can get every episode of Washington Watch, as well as the rest of FRC's resources, directly to you on your phone at your convenience. That's the Stand Firm app, wherever you get your apps. Now, in case you somehow missed it, it's Pride Month, a time when countless Americans seemingly express their acceptance and support of the LGBTQ Q plus people and their chosen lifestyles. But more than acceptance and support, it's evident that they are increasingly being exalted in the culture. 
Well, my next guest will tell you that the way forward is neither to condemn nor to exalt. And she speaks having been on both sides of this debate. Elizabeth Wonong is the co-founder of Changed, an international network of people who no longer identify as LGBT. And she joins me now to talk about the very people that the left doesn't want you to hear from. Elizabeth, welcome to Washington Watch. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. So well, we are to thrilled here. to have you, and, and tell us how you came to be speaking on behalf of the Changed Movement. Well, I'm a pastor in a, in a church in Northern California, and I co-lead a ministry called Equipped to Love. And a couple of years ago, we uh, had in California some legislation that would have prohibited, really, counsel or any resource that was sold in the state of California uh, that suggested sexual orientation can change. And that consumer fraud bill um, kind of hit us and said that w- or inspired us really to stand up and start sharing our stories. So Ken Williams and I founded Equipped to Love and began uh, speaking out about um, legislation because it impacted our ministry and found ourselves in the Capitol ending up testifying. And as we did, it was clear that legislators didn't really believe us. No one had heard stories like ours. And so we eventually began inviting our friends into that. We published a book of testimonies and shared that book of testimonies that we called Changed with different legislators there and um, testified on the Capitol steps with all these friends of ours who had come out of LGBT. And that created the Changed movement. And so Ken Williams and I have been speaking to legislation ever since. Well, you you got started because there has been legislation around the country trying to basically make it illegal to provide counseling that would help people deal with unwanted same-sex attraction. And and you mentioned there that in your interactions with legislators, they you were kind of a unicorn. They didn't believe people like you existed. Tell mm-hmm. me a little bit more about that. Are they receptive? Are they open? Are they hostile? When you come in and say, you know, I used to be gay and now I'm not, what's the reaction? Well, they're typically extremely hostile um, because our testimony, as as some have said, is antithetical to the LGBT experience, that so so many believe you're born gay and that it is a determinative experience. There's nothing that can be done. And our stories obviously tell a different, <laughs> a different story, if you will. That narrative is strongly suppressed and always has been. But there are thousands of men and women who have chosen not to follow the LGBT path and who have either left the lifestyle or never given themselves to it and pursue Christ wholeheartedly um, away from that. And, and how did that happen for you? Uh, well, I came out in my early 20s and uh, became part of the gay-affirming church movement. I went to seminary openly gay. But after graduating from seminary, I had uh, a faith encounter, some experiences in the Lord that I couldn't explain that caused me to begin questioning what I believed about God. And, and that journey led me to question my sexuality again in the context of my faith. And ultimately, as I pursued God, I began to understand myself better. I got a new narrative for my life. And eventually, my sexual desires also began to change as I followed the Lord. Um, I've been married to my husband now for 16 years. That's a beautiful story. And as you, as you, as as the kids say these days, Live your truth. And then you encounter June and Pride Month. 
what's your reaction? How do you deal and navigate um, this, the, the moment that the culture is just celebrating something that you've walked away from? Well, I, you know, I look at it with one foot in two worlds, really, because I, I do know what it's like to be a part of the gay community and to, to have experienced the kind of uh, sometimes hardships or pressures, but also the kind of solidarity that's being expressed uh, as pride. I mean, the community that has created, that has been created or that has formed around the LGBT experience is strong and tightly mm-hmm. knit, and there's uh, a great deal of... Um, of joy while you're in the lifestyle. Um, on the other hand, from a Christian perspective, knowing that there is so much more to the LGBT experience. The, the thing about my journey was that I, I was able in the context of my faith to understand how sexual orientation in my own life had been formed, how I had, how it had, uh, come to manifest and the different pressures and harms that had come to me that resulted in my sexual orientation. Um, That's not being offered to the LGBT community. Instead, simply affirmation is offered. And so um, I stand on this other side looking from a faith perspective, hoping that the gay community will look to Christ and find themselves there. In a few seconds, what do you recommend for those of us who don't have your experience but want to know how to respond to this month? Well, I think thinking or holding human dignity in, your, in the crosshairs and honoring people in the midst of their life experience is the key. Like really cherishing and valuing people and pointing them to the love of Jesus as the hope of their lives. Elizabeth Wanning, thank you so much for your time and for your courage in standing up in what is really a difficult thing to do. We really appreciate you being with us today. Thank you so much. Uh, Coming up, we are going to continue this conversation, elaborate a little bit more, thinking biblically about Pride Month. How should we as Christians engage this moment? That's what we're going to talk about with David Clausen coming up after the break. Stay with us. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day every day. Listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins to get honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world. Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday by tuning into Washington Watch on the American Family Radio Network, Bot Radio, the KTLW Radio Network, and independent Christian radio stations across the country. Or listen to the show when it works for you by visiting TonyPerkins.com. Since the Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade in 1973, over 60 million people are now missing from our country due to legalized abortion. Public opinion, our knowledge of law, and scientific advancements demonstrate that Roe should by no means be considered settled law. Roe is an abomination in our country's history. And it's time for the horrendous practice of legalized abortion to end. To learn more about the legal, historical, and cultural reasons to overturn Roe v. Wade, go to frc.org slash Roe. The Equality Act sounds like good legislation and something that ought to have bipartisan support, but it doesn't. Why? Because the Equality Act, paradoxically, would spur inequality. It is Trojan horse legislation that would hinder equality and would massively overhaul our federal civil rights framework. The stated purpose of the bill is to prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex, gender identity, and sexual orientation. The real effect of this bill would not be to eliminate discrimination, but to erase the freedom to hold a different opinion. The Equality Act would mandate government-imposed inequality by requiring acceptance of a particular ideology about sexual ethics, while leaving no room for legitimate public debate. 
Simply put, the Equality Act mandates an anti-life, anti-family, and anti-faith agenda throughout federal law and would be a disaster for all Americans. To learn more about the inequality of the Equality Act, visit frc.org slash equalityact. Since June of 2015, over 12,000 Christians have been killed in Nigeria. This violence has reached a point at which experts are warning of a progressive genocide specifically targeting Christians across Africa's largest and most economically powerful nation. Yet this violence often goes unreported in the media, and if reported, is seriously downplayed. To learn more about what is actually taking place in Nigeria, along with other countries where Christians face persecution, visit frc.org Nigeria. Did you know that Planned Parenthood is the biggest abortion supplier in the U.S.? According to Planned Parenthood's most recent annual report, it committed 354,871 abortions in fiscal year 2019, up by over 9,000 abortions since 2018. According to these numbers, Planned Parenthood aborted 972 babies every single day. To learn more about what Planned Parenthood is really doing, visit frc.org slash Planned Parenthood facts. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony. As we do every Friday, we like to end the week with a conversation about biblical worldview and how to think biblically about the world that you live in. It's a great opportunity to remind you that the Center for Biblical Worldview from the Family Research Council has been launched in the last 10 days or so. I think we're maybe a week out. And we encourage you to go there, frc.org slash worldview. And in order to have our conversation this week, we'd like to bring in once again David Clausen, who is the director of the Center for Biblical Worldview. David, welcome back to the program. Great to be with you, Joseph. Well, this week, um, and for those who are are new to this segment and maybe new to the show, um, we do this segment on Fridays because every Wednesday, on Worldview Wednesday, we feature a cultural issue and we try to analyze it uh, through a biblical lens and help people think biblically about that issue. And this week, uh, we chose the issue, and I I wrote this contribution, uh, how to think biblically about Pride Month. Because June, um, once upon a time, June meant for me and and maybe for you as well that uh, kids are getting out of school, family vacations are starting, weather is is nice, it's a great time to be outside. Now, June has this other connotation in America and much, uh, much of the Western world, where this is... Pride Month, where we are supposed to celebrate all the accomplishments of the LGBT community. And so I want to start this off by asking you, when June rolls around and your social media feed gets inundated with all of this new rainbow uh, themes that you probably didn't ask for, whether you want it or not, all the companies are changing their logos and that's what's happening. How do you feel about Pride Month? What's your emotion? What's your reaction? A couple things, Joseph. I think, yeah, at the beginning of the month, uh, Pride Month, June 1st, uh, it's sad, uh, and it's also even confusing. You know, I've lived here in D.C. for a couple of years now, and I think uh, this week I've seen more flags, more stickers uh, than in previous years. And it's not just uh, the rainbow flags anymore. We're seeing transgender flags, uh, Black Lives Matter flags. I think some of the flags I've seen have, you know, 13, 14 colors in them now. And so at that point, it's just kind of confusing. Almost every identity you can imagine is is, uh, being represented, unless you're straight or something like that, every identity possible. But it, it is sad as well to see how much energy and how much momentum 
is is behind a movement to champion and celebrate uh, sin and, and something that uh, is is not something that we should be celebrating like this. Yeah, well, I I agree with that. You know, one of the first memories that I I now have I associate with Pride Month several years ago when I was in a different job doing different things. I was in Spokane, Washington at the beginning of June. And Spokane is eastern Washington. It's almost Idaho. It's not Seattle in in many different ways. But I was downtown and I the streets were lined with rainbow flags. And honestly, and these analogies are almost dangerous, but I felt like it was like what it must have felt like to be in a country that had been taken over by a foreign military that had their nation's flag now paraded down your streets. It was like this real sense of hostility. And I felt like it, it in an emotional way, I felt like this assault that I was kind of surprised by. And like, I really do feel like in some ways I am a captive. And I think it's true that in some ways we are captives now that like we are exiles, culturally speaking, uh, that we are cultural captives because though we have not necessarily changed locations, um, the environment that we live in is very different and respond and, and knowing how to knowing how to deal with that is is challenging. And, and that's what we've written about this week. Right, and I think there might be a temptation amongst many of our Christian listeners to just say, you know, we're just going to ignore uh, June as pride. We're just going to pretend that this isn't happening. Right. And I, I don't think that's uh, the right way to handle this because it, it is so in your face uh, at this point, especially if you live in a larger city. You, you can't ignore uh, what you just described, you know, just all the flags and it just the businesses and, and social media just so, so in your face about it, Joseph. And so I think there's, a, there's, we need to acknowledge this. I think Christian parents actually have an opportunity to, to explain uh, to mm-hmm. their children in, in a way that uh, points to Scripture, uh, points to God's design for marriage and human right. sexuality. Um, so I think there's opportunities. Uh, and another thing I'll add, though, is you know, what we're seeing, uh, how much this is in your face, uh, it, we're only, what is it, six years post-Obergefell, uh, right. the, the Supreme six Court years. decision that legalized same-sex marriage. And, you know, at the time they said, well, it's going to end with just recognizing same-sex marriage as, as a legitimate, as another form of marriage. And, you know, those of us at the time six years ago who were saying the, talking about the slippery slope, look how far we've come. It's yeah. no longer just accept uh, a redefinition of marriage. It's you will accept this or else. Uh, you will be driven from the public square. You're going to be made to feel like a bigot or an idiot. Right. And so it's, it's a reminder how fast the moral revolution is moving, yeah. which is why those of us who do follow Jesus need to be thinking well about these things. And that's what we have attempted to do this week in the blog post. Uh, it's five things to think about Pride Month uh, for Christians. And I encourage you to go find that there at uh, frc.org slash blog as well as frc.org slash worldview. And I want to talk through these because um, these are the things that came to mind for me that I think are helpful in some in in part. I wrote this to encourage myself, which I hope will encourage some other people as well. We'll talk through each of the five of these and, and I'll give my piece and then you can react and argue with me or contribute whatever you want to do, however you want to do that. Um, but the first point I made is that pride celebrations are not new. And 
to me, this is helpful because though it feels new in the in the span of human history, it is not particularly new. The analogy I drew, I went all the way back to the beginning, back to Genesis chapter three, and and this, when sin entered the world, and Adam and Eve lived in a perfect world in which God had said, "Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will surely die." And of course, the serpent Satan comes in and asks Eve, "Did God really say that?" And they begin to have this dialogue, and ultimately Eve. Uh, it shows in, in verse 6 of chapter 3, Genesis 3, 6, the rationale that she went through. And she determined that it was, it was um, good to eat. She convinced that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was good for food, and that it was desirable to make one wise. And in the course of this, this, this last part, it was desirable to make one wise. And what she did is she convinced herself that eating the fruit of the tree that God told her not to eat of was actually desirable. It was a good thing. It was virtuous. And she, through her rationale, convinced herself that what she was doing was the right thing. And that is very much the the attitude I think we see in these pride events where some of them are outright in knowingly rebelling against God because that's their attitude. But there's a lot of people who have convinced themselves that God is on their side and that what they're doing is rebellious because, you know, love is love, hashtag, and and all of those kind of slogans. Um, But for me, it's helpful to remember this because Adam and Eve basically started the first pride parade by saying, hey, God, we actually know more than you do. Thanks for your contributions, but we've evolved a little bit, and we're now a little smarter. And uh, ever since then, you and I have all been contributing to this pride parade in some way, haven't we? I think that's really a helpful way to to think about it, Joseph. Um, when it, the idea that pride celebrations are not new, you know, Scripture tells us that there's nothing new under the sun. And by going back to Genesis, uh, this is a helpful way. You, you have a line in the blog uh, that says, um, she convinced herself, referring to Eve, that her rebellion would not be rebellion at all, but virtue. And, and that's exactly what we're seeing. It, it, this moral inversion. So that something that is, uh, you know, morally praiseworthy, uh, you know, following God's design for marriage and sexuality ha- is now being turned on its head. And something that is condemned in scripture is now being lifted up. Uh, that's something that should be promoted and championed and celebrated. So it's this moral inversion that's taking place uh, today with, with right. the pride parades. But we've been doing that throughout human history, which is why it's so important to go back to the word and, and realize, uh, you know, Genesis 3, this is when sin entered the world, and it affects everything, Joseph. Mm-hmm. Our, our affections, our emotions, our desires, everything has been corrupted and changed by the fall, including uh, human sexuality. So I, th- I think this is a helpful place uh, for this conversation. Yeah. The second point that helps me think through uh, Pride Month is in, in the second point that I write in the, in the blog here, you can love the way God wants you to or the way the world wants you to, but not both. And the point here I'm, I'm trying to make is that everybody is supportive of love. Everybody is pro-love, basically. But while we're using the same words, we have different dictionaries. Yes. And the culture's understanding of love is different than God's understanding of love. And we see God define what love is in 1 Corinthians 13. We don't have to guess what does God think of love. And, and 
Scripture tells us that love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy or boast, it's not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it's not irritable, it's not resentful, all these things, and everybody's like, yeah, we're all applauding together, right? So that's where we agree. There's great overlap between the way the culture thinks about love and the way the gospel thinks about love. But the next verse, and this is 1 Corinthians uh, 13, 6, this is where... as Robert Frost would say, I came to a path in the woods and the, the diverged, and I actually can't quote him very well, but everybody, I think, knows the reference, right? There's, there's, you, you come to a path, and you have to go left, and you have to go right, and that happens on love in 1 Corinthians thirteen six, where Paul writes that love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, it rejoices in the truth. Right. I think what Frost said in the poem is that he had chose the one least, the path least taken. That's made all the difference. And increasingly, the the path that we're having to choose as Christians is the one that's not traveled, the one that's least frequently taken. And you know, he who controls the lexicon controls the conversation. And what we are seeing here with Pride Month is a redefinition of what it means uh, to to love someone. And I think what you're doing here, Joseph, drawing our attention to to First Corinthians is helpful because God, we don't have to guess what God's design for love is. We don't have to guess what His design for marriage and human sexuality is. He He lays this out in Scripture. In fact, He lays out His design for marriage and sexuality before the fall. This is Genesis one and two. Right. Marriage, sexuality, these are pre all institutions that are morally good. And again, we've talked about it just a second ago with the the fall. These things are now being turned on their head. They're being inverted. And that's what's going on. Right. And so this month in June, and this is a great conversation to have with your kids. Aren't we all pro-love? Of course we're pro-love. But remember, we have to love the way God wants us to, not the way the culture wants us to. The culture wants us to celebrate what God thinks is, is, is sin as a, as a way to love, and God's form of love forbids us from celebrating uh, sin. And that's why we have to make a choice. These are mutually exclusive options. The third point I make in this blog is that pride comes before a fall. And, and this is, I mean, it, it, it almost feels so obvious it's not worth saying. This is basically, I think it's God trolling us that he allowed the pride parade to be called a pride parade because he says in Proverbs sixteen eighteen. Uh, Pride comes before a, a fall, is what he tells us, is that pride is the prelude to your destruction. But yet they went and named their parade right. Pride anyway. It's ironic. You know, we don't have a, you know, a gluttony parade or a sloth parade, you know, celebrating these things that are destructive, things that are not good. You know, even I think people who would attend these events would say, well, yeah, you know, pride, if you give them the, de- the dictionary definition, pride, this exaltation of self mm-hmm. and your own desires is not a good thing. It's destructive. You know, no one likes to be around a proud person. And yet actually calling these events pride celebrations and pride events, it, it, it's, it's deeply ironic. And I think that is lost on a lot of people. Yeah. And, and I think that, uh, you know, the pride that we are supposed to have is not in ourselves, but in fact in our weakness. That's what Paul tells us to boast about repeatedly because his power is made perfect in our weakness. And if we have any boast at all, it's in Jesus. And we're going to talk about that part uh, in the next point, in the fourth point here in the blog. And that is no one is beyond the love or the reach of Jesus. And this is really, really important because the emotions that, that arise within us sometimes when we see these rainbow flags everywhere, when we see people celebrating things that are wrong, when we feel in some cases threatened as we feel the pressure of the culture bearing down on us because of what right. we believe that can lead to animosity that can lead to genuine feelings of hatred and we can't do that can we 
No, we can't. A, a scripture verse I want to share, Joseph, because I think you're right. Christians can kind of almost, we can wad up our fist and feel like we need to confront the, the culture and those who are a part of these events. But listen to what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But then listen to verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And Joseph, this month I know people get irritated uh, with the things we see on social media and in retailers and whatnot, but such were some of us. Maybe we weren't practicing that kind of sin, but we were rebelling against God in our own hearts and in, in different ways. And the hope of the gospel is for all people, including those flying those rainbow flags, and we can never forget right. that. And and Jesus gives us the alternative, rather than anger, rather than hate, um, it's it's compassion. Because when people are lost, they deserve compassion. Now we've got little time to get to the fifth yep. point here, but the f- fifth point I make in in this blog: um, don't be afraid. And I think that's critical. It's related to the last point that we just made. Um, that. God is in charge. He, we are sometimes surprised. We are sometimes saddened. Um, God is saddened, but God is never surprised. That we do not have to fear that he's lost control of the world, that somehow things are not going to work out okay. Because, right. because of Jesus, um, which is the only thing that separates us from them, but because of him, we can have great confidence that he's going to work through this. Yeah, we can have confidence. I think. imagine a lot of Christian parents probably get apprehensive uh, in, in the month of June having, oh, how am I going to explain all this to my kids? And we can have confidence. You know, let's explain these things in age-appropriate ways mm-hmm. to our children, point them to God's Word. But yeah. we don't need to have a spirit of fear. Right. God doesn't give us a spirit of fear. We can be confident and, and honor the Lord in the conversations yeah. we have this month. That's exactly right. David Clausen, thank you again so much for your time to join us. Look forward to the next one. Thank you, Joseph. And do keep that in mind, and we hope that this is going to be helpful to you for your children. Encourage you again to go find the blog if it's helpful for you and your talking points over dinner with your children at frc.org slash blog. You can find that there. How to think biblically about Pride Month because we do want you to be not afraid, uh, fear not, and make sure that you are being the person that Jesus has called you to be all the time. God bless. We'll see you next time. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at one 866 372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.